Hello everyone, welcome to podcast number 12 of Coherence Talks. Uh, today I have with me Chris Ayer, I'm a software craftsman. I've been with uh, Coherence six months now. Sam, software craftsman. I've been with Coherence for a similar time, maybe slightly longer. I'm Nick, I'm a software craftsman. I graduated from the apprentice scheme just had two months ago. Okay, and well, you know me, uh, Jorge, sometimes mumbles. And today we are going to be talking about uh, our influential books, which books have uh, saved the way we think, maybe about programming, maybe in general. So who wants to start? Okay, <laughs> Go I, I guess it's me. So I had a lot of books to choose from, but the one I'm reading at the moment, which is Black Box Thinking, uh, I find amazing that the way that it makes you uh, think about failure in a different light and how failure is actually necessary for innovation. I would say for me is definitely one of my influential, most most influential books. It's just amazing. Um, okay, from who who is the author? I think I'm probably going to pronounce the surname wrong, but Matthew Syed, and I think he was like a, a British badminton like champion. He has another book called Bounce, which I haven't read. Um, apparently, it's a bit up and down. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. It talks about how like aviation. I don't want to spoil all of the book, but it talks about how aviation, how actually crashes, uh, disasters are actually necessary because then they can learn from them and actually improve. So failure, in that sense, is is actually uh, necessary. And also one of the other interesting things is how, so say like uh, Dyson, you know, the, the, va- the vacuum cleaner, mm-hmm. how the failure was in the current technology. And then he looked at that and he said, well, you know, maybe I can do it better. And he actually then tried it and actually managed, has made a successful company out of, out of doing so. There's many interesting things. I don't want to, I won't say it all now, but yeah, there's very interesting <laughs> Okay, we'll come back to that later on. What right. do we have, Chris? Right, the book I've got with me is Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which was a classic that came out in the 70s. Um, the book covers a... It's actually a fictional no, fictional novel of someone's uh, actual experience, and it goes through um, explaining um, Eastern philosophy, Western philosophy, the scientific technique, what is quality, is quality subjective or objective? It's a lot of big ideas and encourages people to, to wonder about uh, should we be looking at, at what's best rather than what's new, which is a real topic we ought to be worrying about at the moment. Which one are you bringing to the table? So I've brought a book called Peak, and the subtitle is How All of Us Can Achieve Extraordinary Things. It's by a psychologist called Anders Ericsson, and it's about his life's work, which has basically been in proving that talent is a myth. It's about how people, how experts achieve what they're expert at. It's about an idea called deliberate practice. It's about the way that you can, you can build yourself up to doing really, really extraordinary things like being a Mozart or being a, a taxi driver even or being a you know, star programmer or whatever. And it's, his, uh, it's the studies he's done to find out what happens to people's brains when they practice and it's the studies he's um, he's done to find out uh, how people respond okay a few different books none of the well actually uh, the motorcycle one is quite famous I have never actually read it a lot of people say that they keep saying that a lot of people I've spoken to at the company have actually got it on their bookshelf on the meaning to read pile but yes. um, I thoroughly <laughs> recommend that they actually pick it up and re- read it it's uh, got an awful wide range of stuff um, I read it when I was back at university, 
And oddly enough, I got dragged along to a science... Because I was belonging to the Science Fiction Society, I got dragged along to, to the uh, philosophy of science fiction. And having read this one book, I was able to actually... I knew more about Eastern philosophy than, a, than one of the, the Western philosophy uh, lecturers, which was a very, very bizarre experience. It's a really, really eye-opening book on, on detail. And it, 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 a large amount of the question is, what is quality? And again, that's just something that everyone should be dealing with. It's a, a large part of what we do. And um, yeah. one of, it, one of the, the big arguments is that, um, well, it's not really much of a spoiler, is that um, quality is the difference between uh, subjective and objective thinking, which is kind of big, deep topic. Yeah, I'll need some time for that to settle, actually. Yeah, just dropping into a big f- f- philosophy bomb there. But uh. <laughs> well, that's, that's all we want to yeah. talk about. And yes... We are, we are talking that is about uh, different types of philosophies and Western Eastern philosophy. Yeah. What did attract you originally to the book? Um, how come you, how come that you read it originally? Uh, largely, uh, someone actually, uh, I, I actually met someone else who, was, who had, had read a copy and they'd actually described it as a ghost story, which uh, is kind of true in one sense. But, what do you mean ghost story? Well, it was described as being a ghost story. Um, um, I can't give you the details, it would spoil the plot, the plot of it, but uh, yeah. there is, uh, there is a, there's a subplot in there about, about someone trying to, trying to uh, track down a ghost, but the ghost they refer to the ghost of rationality. Um, again, it's got, one of the ideas they have, the, one of the ideas in, within the book that gets quite a big, big point is the idea of the difference between philosophy, but the idea that people are either into the scientific view of the world, which they call the kind of classical approach, and there's a romantic approach of just looking at the world as a whole. And it's mm. a way of unifying these two worldviews. And again, mm. another big problem, a big problem we've got to still, still to deal with today. Uh, I expect that for, for quite a long time we'll have to deal with that. But you were mentioning about quality as one of the main ideas. It's the main top, one of the main topics, yes. What is quality? Um, how do you determine whether something is good, good, or, good or right? And what is quality is, is one of the major themes of the book. How your uh, your own view changed about quality after reading the book? Most largely, it's about thinking that you have to re- really think about how important quality is. It's the whole. It's the measure of how things are good. It's 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 measure of what is good, what is worthwhile. It's a, it's basically a massive you know, viewpoint or detail, and it is the thing that kind of unifies Eastern and Western philosophies. It's a. When you say quality, do you mean does it talk about sort of of a thing of a person? Is it? A- a concrete thing, or that's kind of the abstract, abstract thing. It, what is it? Kind of, it's the kind of good, or is it good, or is it bad? It's kind of uh, even they say that one of the examples they get down to simple things. An amoeba trying to work out the quality of its environment. If you kind of put acid in one side of a tank, and it will move to the uh, the other side to get away from it. So, so it evolves it, out of that. Yeah, that, that, from, that, that from, from kind of basic need, basic need up to which would you choose? You'd, you'd, generally, people would choose choose to pick pick, pick things of higher quality. It, is, is it true always that that people choose? If you had a choice, if you had a choice of environments, people would always pick. If you had a choice, if you had a free choice between the two, you'd always pick yeah. the one with higher quality. Okay, so that assumes that everything else is equal, yeah. With everything else being equal, yes. Okay. Uh, admittedly, there's some things. There's a high quality one that you'd like to have but can't afford, but that's different. Any other main topics in the book apart from quality? Um. Well, it's so, it's kind of the social social splits about people the, the viewpoints of the world. People splitting between the ones that actually are, are afraid of. At this point, they're referring to the kind of uh, the the hip and square well, it, because it was written in the seventies. Referring to nineteen sixties nomenclature about kind of the people having the hip and square approach. Kind of basically the technologists and non technologists, and it's a way of how to unify those people as well. Okay, so that's an interesting question because you are, you were mentioning earlier on about the the, the fact that is. Uh, Trying to harmonize, harmonize the the scientific or technological view of the world with the more romantic one. Yes, is is that just a 
it just happens to be a product of when it was created. So a person that went through the 60s. Yes, it, it, the, guy, the, guy was, the guy was teaching in the teaching. He was actually a teacher in the 1960s and the 50s and 60s. Okay, well, he was teaching philosophy or? Um, he was teaching English and particularly rhetoric. Okay. So it's a which is the kind of the, the idea. The rhetoric is kind of a, a logical construct of explaining of, of formu formulating arguments. Um, he also argues that some philosophers kind of use rhetoric as kind of a neg as a purgative term, but that's largely he's kind of um, thinks that that's because it's just um, came down to who the history of history of things, and it was um, as it, as it's always been. History is written by the victors, so that the rhetor rhetor rhetoricians of Greece were actually the, on the losing side. But it's right. a it's a, a, a way of forming of constructing logical arguments. Well, the Scratching method is all about rhetoric, isn't it? Yes. This, um, the the main character calls him. The main character call, calls calls his earlier self Phaedrus, which is from comes from one of those, one of Socrates' uh, plays. Okay. So one of his writings. So. Uh, okay. So we'll have a few of them in topics. How, how is the, what is the quality of the of of the actual prose? Do you like it? Is good yeah, it's very, it's very, it's very good. Uh, the it has a very interesting style in that the entire book is entirely one character's thoughts. Um, I've only ever read one other book, and that's Rebecca, that has the same same thing. Most books actually have some kind of dialogue or conversation in it. It yeah. has literally has zero dialogue in it, other than what someone recalling what is said. It's entirely from one person's point of view. Is it a stream of consciousness or? No, it's well he's, 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 he's almost like he's, like, he's, he's trying to give a lecture in his giving a lecture to the, to a known audience in his head, but literally there is oh, no there is absolutely no no other character in it. So there are some interesting um, there are interesting writing techniques you can have of that by doing that. I can't give too much away because otherwise it would spoil the story for someone to read it. <laughs> but, uh, so. For example, in uh, the example you can get in in, uh, to, in using the example of Rebecca, um, you end up finding out that she's actually not the hero of the of the book. Just because it's the book is the first person narrative, it's all done from it's her perspective. Unreliable. Yes, it's, it's, it's not. It's not. Unreliable. It's not reliable. She doesn't realise that she's not actually the hero. Oh, okay. I see. So uh, she thinks she's the victim of it. But if you actually from outside, once you actually go through the book, you actually realise that actually not that the main character is not is actually not wasn't actually the good person. Mm. So it's, um, it's an, an interesting, not quite not quite the same in this, but it's very very similar idea. Okay. How many people have you recommended the book so far? Um, I probably recommend about ten people. So it's a. And uh, I've, I mean, I've mentioned it around here, a, lot of, a couple of people at the company said, yeah, I've, I've got that on my list to read. Good. Well, let's going to move to the next one. Okay. So, so there, are, there aren't so many themes in the book other than, well, from what I've read so far. <laughs> this is my account <laughs> so far in the book, is that it's basically centred around our attitude towards failure and how somewhere, somehow we think of failure as a, as a bad thing. Yeah. And people convince us that failure is bad. You know, you make a mistake, oh, you know. Well, what are you doing? You know, and I think in a lot of environments, uh, failure. You know, people are punished for 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 failing to do something or yeah. doing something incorrectly. And really, what the book provides quite compelling examples of is where the attitudes to failure have changed, and they've actually they embrace failure. So they they take a failure and they say, well, how can we learn from this, um, and how can we effectively evolve our minds, processes, etc to try and avoid this in the future um, and a lot of phrases like in agile and stuff you know failing fast um, there's companies out there that are very much centered around this idea so for instance pixar so the idea is that when they have an idea for like an animation film that they want to try and fail as, as quickly as they can so uh, i think in i can't remember i think it was like the president or something of one of, of pixar um, in his book he talks about how um, 
a lot of the initial ideas for the films that we know as huge successes, uh, so say something like Toy Story, the idea, the original ideas were actually pretty bad, um, and you wouldn't, they're almost unrecognisable from where the film ended up. And yeah. So what it is is it's about trying something. It's about bringing in people to you know see what like to test and see look at the film and then get their feedback. Just test the ideas and try and fail as quickly as they can so they can quite iterate and improve what they have. Um, and I, I just think, I mean, I haven't even finished the book. This is not so funny. Like it's, I'm already s- stating it as one of my influential books and I haven't even finished it. Um, <laughs> I'm still reading it at the moment, which is, uh, so yeah, like since I started reading it a couple of weeks ago, like I've just been addicted to it, like, you know, reading it on the commute, etc. Like it's, it's amazing. One of the things that's particularly interesting to our field of work is uh, when it talks about, I don't want to spoil too much from the book, but it talks about the importance of like randomized uh, control trials. Yeah. So, um, for instance, for us, like things like A/B testing, um, and how that. So, say you want to test a change to a website, you might, you know, randomly direct them to either A version A or B of the site to see whether it has an impact. And theoretically, both both times the user sees A or B, they should be experiencing roughly the same factors, regardless of which one they visit. So, if there's some kind of sale or on, they're going to re- hopefully they have the same factors whether they visit either one. And then you can try and see which one is more successful. And I think that is really interesting. It's, it, it, it requires a slight change in the way we think about making changes because historically you would just make the change to your website, oh, I changed this color. And then you find out, oh, this is something, something bad's happened. Um, and in some cases you wouldn't even know. Uh, so if you don't measure, if you don't get the data points, then you're not gonna know that it's had a negative impact. But it's, it's the idea of just getting things out there, get it into the real world and kind of fail and then you can then quickly then change. Um, I think Google did this um, a while ago with uh, like, uh, I think it was like the color of their buttons or something. Yeah. Um, and they, they tried different variations and then they then they iterated on that and then they found oh, actually let's then do this and they, they had like a particular palette. So after the initial test, they produced like a palette of, of like a range of colors that then they then tested those ones and they kind of went through this like evolution. Um, so yeah, the main thing from the book is the attitude to failure um, and about how we can, it talks also about on the front cover about marginal gains, um, which was actually one of the reasons why I wanted to read it because I'm very intrigued about how we can make slight changes and actually incrementally, and actually something can have quite a profound impact. If you make enough marginal kind of changes, then you can have the impact. One of the things you just talked about is that it's about actually measuring that. So it's not just about making a small change. It's not like maybe, um, I don't know, maybe we get like a quicker like water dispenser in the office. It's not just about making a tiny change. It's about actually well, measuring does it actually have an impact on, on, on what you're trying to improve. So yeah. on, on that topic, it reminds me of a conversation I, I had with a, a motivational speaker who was talking about the British Olympic cycling team. And one of the questions is, why are they doing so much better? And one of the arguments they said is they've got a more circular wheel. Now, they were, people thought that was joking, that they were coming with a more circular wheel, but they found that this actually made a tenth, a one tenth, one hundredth of a second increase in, in speed, uh, in their speed. But then they started making small other adjustments, like um, a slightly comfier saddle, and a slightly adjust, a slight adjustments to heighten that, and each of them incrementally and independently added to the speed of the, uh, of the rider. And they made a hundred tiny changes, and suddenly they got a team that was unbeatable. So it's actually it's in, in, incrementally in, increases and measuring it properly and doing doing the research and doing the time and working it out over enough to, over enough time periods can make significant benefits, yeah. especially if in something like uh, like racing where a few seconds difference is the is the kind of gold gold to gold to bronze 
Exactly. And in uh, Team Sky, for instance, which is probably the same team you're referring to, they also made changes, not just with the like the actual race itself, but the, the build-up. So, for instance, they'll ensure all athletes sleep on the same mattress every night. Uh, if they have to stay in a hotel room, they'll make sure that it's all hoovered and stuff to reduce the chance of infection. When they're staying in the room, all of these things, that they like, small things, that ultimately then build up to the, what the success that they get on the track or on the, on the road. I'm interested in the title. What do you, does it say? What the title comes from? Yeah, so just like at the title, you would think that it was literally like black box, like you know, black box testing or something. Like you're just looking at something from the outside. But oh. what it actually comes from is actually the black boxes inside of airplanes. Oh, of course. Yeah. And what it is is about the fact, obviously, you know, if there's been a disaster or something, you then take the black box and you find out what what went wrong and you kind of deconstruct it and you see well, actually, how can we what can, we, what can we learn from this? Like, how can we stop this from happening again? Um, yeah, so the be, idea is apply that, but don't crash any planes. Well, I've, I've, I've encountered yeah. a really uh, interesting example in the past in my, in my career. We, we actually, at one point, so used to start logging every single exception that our application threw in a, in a log file in, the, in a database. And on one occasion, we managed to get one of the clients who wanted us to do some upgrade, uh, investigate some problems. So they gave us a backup of the production database to have an investigate on. And I was given three days to look at all of the exceptions that the users had had and, ma- and basically make change to the user interface to stop them happening again. The upside was the users were really, really happy with that version. The downside is we took them 18 months to convince them to take the next upgrade. So uh, sometimes these things can have a negative, despite the fact we have something that was really, as far as the users thought was really, really good, they couldn't tell you why. It just happened that uh, they weren't, all the errors that they were having are gone. And sometimes uh, these measurements can have uh, interesting effects. We have a user so happy with it they wouldn't take an upgrade. Yes, there's a few there's a few things in the book which are very similar where uh, intuitive solutions turn out to not be the solution, and actually the solution that you think would be or the obvious one actually turns out not to be, and it's actually something completely different. Uh, there's a few examples in the book like uh, approaches to like um, I think it was like um, in maybe in Kenya they were looking at how they can improve like uh, healthcare there. And I won't, I won't spoil it, but the, the solution that they have in the book is very different to what you think would actually be the solution. And it was the process of just saying, well, here we have an idea. We can sit in a room for, you know, six months and hypothesize about which one is best and et cetera. But actually just getting out to the real world and trying something and then getting gathering the data was actually the most effective way to find out what works. And, and not, 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 not re- don't remain there. That's one of the kind of key themes as well is once you try something, if it starts to work, like say you make a change to a website, and you start seeing that traffic increases or you know revenue it's not just about staying there and just leaving it's about well actually let's evolve because the whole thing is about evolution and the fact that you have to learn through failure um so you can't just sit there and just like, yeah it's, we're making money that's that's fine <laughs> did, oh. they, did they talk about sample sizes about how much data yeah. you actually require yeah. to do this because otherwise sometimes you've got some some websites yeah. have enough traffic that you could actually do an a b testing in two or three days other websites the yes. A/B testing can actually take weeks, weeks before you're allowed to change anything else. Otherwise, you'd spoil yeah. the test. Yeah, exactly. And it, it, and obviously, like in certain scenarios, the, the feedback loop might be slightly longer. You want to try and make it obviously as short as possible. Um, but for instance, if you're changing a tire on a Formula One car, you know the feedback's going to be fairly instantaneous in the sense that you you can they can look after it. They can they attach sensors to all like the nuts and stuff, so they can see what has actually what's immediately. Whereas if you're I don't know, maybe making a change to your diet or something and you're seeing an effect, you might have to wait like a week or so to see. So like, I guess it depends. Like, but um, yeah, sample size is definitely important because, you know, depending on the sample size, you can definitely skew the results. You can think, oh yeah, this is amazing. And then actually you test it maybe on a larger sample size and you're like, oh, it's not what we thought actually. Um, but yeah, it's a good point. 
How come you started to write, uh, write, uh, create the book? So, for me, it was just uh, I don't know. I, I guess a lot of the uh, online retailers they're very good at recommending books in your reading because I have a certain reading pattern. Uh, I like reading certain types of books. So, like uh, books like uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. I like reading about the mind and about you know how how you can improve things and you know that sort of thing. So, uh, I think I saw it uh, as well in. I think I walked into like somewhere like Waterstones and I saw it as well on the shelf and I was like, oh, oh that's very interesting. And then, funny enough, you know, I saw it on Amazon as well. And I was like, oh, yeah. I just, I just get it. You know, just it sounded fascinating. Um, but if you're like me, your reading list is is mm. quite large. So, <laughs> so it's just a case of, oh yeah, I'll just next up on the list sort of thing. Um, but yeah, for me, it was just about the fact that. Uh, from what I had read about it, it sounded like my kind of book, just because it was in a similar kind of reading circle to what I generally read. So, yeah. Okay. How how about how about the style? The of the book is it easy to read? Uh, is it easy to understand? Yeah, yeah. So it, it's very accessible. Um, like I think people of all ages could could definitely read it. Like it's not it's not skewed to particular audience. If that makes sense, it's it's very accessible. Um, Like from you could be any field, uh, like in any company, and you could definitely uh, learn things from it. Um, I think I think it's really interesting is because you can tell the author's gone out and spoken to a lot of people and um, has definitely done their research. So it's very interesting because they, you know, he can say, oh, you know, when I spoke to you know James Dyson or whatever, you know, it's really interesting. Like he can actually cite his conversations with with these people, um, and there's some really like nice nuggets of information in there that you can take away and be like. It makes you think that um, you know success and, and stuff isn't necessarily to some kind of grand master plan. It's actually through failures that these things emerge. So it's really interesting. Okay, let's now move to the third one. So Nick, go ahead. So uh, so the book I brought, Pete, is actually quite. Uh, it's the sort of the individual version of black box thinking. Black box te thinking is about how teams can be incredibly efficient this is about how you yourself can and it grabbed me because it starts off by talking about perfect pitch now if any of you musicians you'll know that's when you can identify what note something is just by listening without needing to reference a piano uh, it's incredibly rare something like one in a thousand one in ten thousand people have it and it's always been thought that it was just a gift it was just an example of something where some people were just born better than others mm -hmm. and The cool thing about this book is that he goes straight in and he says, well, here are five studies that prove that actually you can perfectly well teach it as long as you know what to teach. It's a lot easier to acquire before the age of about six, but it's perfectly possible with enough practice to acquire it later in life as well. So I can't remember whether it was the author or someone else. They actually they decided we're going we're gonna to see about this perfect pitch thing. We're going to try and teach people to have it. Everyone says it's an innate thing and you've either got it or you haven't and that's it. So they took a load of musicians, like really, really small kids this is, who had just started learning music and they did some targeted training where they would play a note and then ask the kid to say, what note's that? And then they'd tell them and then repeat and repeat and repeat. So effectively they would do perfect pitch practice with these kids. And some of them took longer than others, we're talking a few months, maybe it's up to half a year, but they all ended up having perfect pitch. And I'm a, I used to be a musician, so by that point I was hooked. 
<laughs> that, that's interesting because uh, as well, uh, uh, I did a sound back in, in Spain and was uh, was time tam- trumpet, and it, it, it comes to mind something that I, there was this uh, opera, Los uh, Amantes de Teruel, the Lovers of Teruel. It's a um, Opera, not, not, not very much uh, play, and there was this specific part of the score in which you you have uh, how's it called Mirado uh, does flute E E D C so you go E D C on yep. uh, but uh, it's a thing is uh, E four uh, D four before I believe mm-hmm. I don't remember exactly now but I was. I'm not really good at uh, even being having done a lot of uh, music. Uh, sometimes it takes me a lot of time to actually get the pitch that I'm supposed to be doing. Once I get it, it's fine. But until mm-hmm. I get it the first time, it's always difficult. With this one, I, I was able to always sing those three notes in an exactly same tone. And I, I, I always thought that it was uh, because I kind of, as I was doing it, I was pay, paying attention to how my muscles were reacting, my, uh, my muscles. Is it because you played, you practiced it so many times, you played yeah. it so many times that eventually it was it's just... muscle memory. Total. Yeah. It is, yeah. And, and it was just, it, 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 will, it only happened with us, uh, with, it was the beginning of a, of a, of a choir part. And it was all those, those three, I could always go back and say, oh, I need to get the, the tone. There, I have it. Well, that's what the book's about. It's about muscle memory in your brain, things exactly like that. And he applies it to absolutely, he applies it to all sorts of stuff. Uh, he applies it to London taxi drivers who, I don't know if you know, but they do the, the, knowledge. They do the knowledge, which is one of the hardest tests in the world um, for raw sort of memory factual recall. Mm. Um, their, the hippocampus in their brains actually grows when they're doing it. And it, I believe, actually shrinks again if they, if they retire. And that it remains large only whilst they're using that memory as a working taxi driver. Then it talks about Top Gun, uh, the the school for U.S. Navy pilots in Vietnam, uh, and they they turned it around. And I'm afraid I forget the statistics, but from um, something like one plane lost for every enemy plane shot down to one plane lost for every five enemy planes shot down just by really drilling, they had, a, they had a training camp, they were really, really drilling this stuff. And it goes on from there and starts saying, well actually, this means maybe the limits we were thinking about weren't there. Maybe, maybe you can push yourself to do more stuff than you thought you could. And that's cool for me, interesting from my perspective, because I did a career change in software. And a lot of people said, and I've heard from other other people who did a career change into software. A lot of people have said, to them, no, no, you have, to ha- you have to have a certain type of person. You have to be a certain type of person in order to be good at software. But with enough practice in the right way, you can overcome that and you can move into a career in it. I've also heard a lot of people kind of music, music, and, music to software is one of the transitions I've heard a lot of people do. Um, another one being philosophy to software. They're kind of really weird combinations. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so. Well, this one interesting fact about that is that as a musician you are you are uh, you do your pages your scales every single day you are practicing and you are practicing in a very specific way always to try to 
memorize and, and, and get that, uh, that muscle memory and, uh, and recall memory to things very, very specifically. And one of the things, I mean, we, we are always, all of us belong to, uh, believe in soft craftsmanship and we do katas. And that's the, basically the same idea. Exactly. The katas are repeating and repeating again the, uh, the different different exercises to try to make, to uh, to perfect your, your, your technique of doing stuff. And it is, it is that kind of uh, approach to what we do that it is kind of a kind of similar between music and and what, what we do is because we don't mm. consider uh, programming just uh, how's it called uh, putting bricks on a on a wall it is it does involve a bit more and involves getting we are kind of uh, how's it called doing a mental engineering no no, no. I'm thinking about uh, uh, music when you do uh, not random <laughs> And oh, what's the word of this one? This thing, typical of jazz. What's uh, the word in Spanish? I don't even remember the word. <laughs> I mean, I have forgotten Spanish. <laughs> no practice enough. Um, uh, swing? Eh? Do, you mean, do you mean swing? No, no, no. When, when you uh, put a bunch of people together to do something uh, new uh, without having rehearsed. Improvisation. Improvisation. Yeah, yeah, improvisation. <laughs> There's one specific word for it. Uh, a jam? Solo? Jam. Jam. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I mean, half of the time that's, that's what we are doing. We, we have all the techniques that we have, uh, we have learned. We have all the uh, all previous experience and we have to create uh, something new. And that, basically that's what we are doing. We are jamming all, all jamming. the time. Yeah, programming isn't jamming. Uh, programming uh, jamming yeah. It's an interesting like concept. That. Plus, you've also got the musician thing of having to translate um, a code in uh, the musical notes into something else. So you actually musical tra transcription of, of ideas from one state to another is a it's it's natural natural thing, thing yeah. and that also comes into programming. But the interesting thing about all the master improvisers, all the very very best improvisers and jammers, like Charlie Parker, for instance, is they all clocked tens of thousands of hours of practicing, not just practicing improvising, but practicing, they would do little little passages of notes over and over again until they could get it, and then they'd change it slightly and do it again. So they built up this enormous repertoire of bits of music that they could call on when they were jamming. And that's the closest, I think that's the closest parallel we have to katas, because we always do a kata in a slightly different way. We always make sure, we always employ something slightly different. And it builds up a big bit of experience that we can use to apply when we're, when we're in the zone, when we're on a site. Uh, that, that's a very good analogy to what we do. I like it. We'll have to use it in the future, some presentation or whatever. <laughs> does, does the book talk about when you've ingrained something, that, like an incorrect you know, pattern, um, and how hard that, that can be to, to kind of unlearn <laughs> or alter well I mean it doesn't talk about that specifically but unlearning something is the same as learning something right it happens very you know it's like it's like building a new skill it, because it's only it's just making new connections the fact that you have old stuff there doesn't 
really make a difference it as far can, as the protocol. It can, well, it can hurt. I'm just saying the big, it's the concept oh, of beginner. Achieving, achieving the concept of beginner's mind is the idea that you actually are in a state of learning. Whereas there's, there's, there's a difference between learning as in redoing something you've, you already know how to do. So you learn a lot more within, in a beginner's mind state than you do if you're not. I see what you're saying. Yeah, to be honest, I think that's beyond the scope of this book, but I suspect okay. if you went into Ericsson's back catalogue of scientific papers and put your, put your yeah. psychologist hat on, there would, be some, there would be some stuff on that. Yeah. There is always this standard, learning reaching a certain level at any skill. So going go to the, it's basically the 80-20 rule for, for, for learning skills. Well, it is, if you dedicate a time, uh, you can go very quickly from not knowing anything to having a decent level. Mm. It requires far more to be to be moving forward, and you want to be really, really at the top. Is is continuous improvement. Um, there, there are a couple of things that do come to mind because of that. Is uh, and those two are personal experience. This is the way I tend to I tend to things. If I get into something, I I spend a lot of time on it for until I reach the point in which just doing it uh, so in which I reach my a plateau of uh, of ability and and then I, I know that I will have to change how I do things or or how I learn to to keep moving forward uh, forward so to put an example squash uh, I never played squash and then I started playing with some uh, colleagues at the previous work. And I was doing every day. I was going every day, one hour, because as well, repetition is not, not just—it's not just repetition. It's that you have to, uh, when you are studying, you have to be constant on it. If I am studying something, I am doing once every month. You don't learn anything. But by the time that you go back to to it, is you have forgotten whatever you were doing. But if it's constant, whatever you have learned on the previous day, you kind of carry carry over. So with squash, was, I was playing with, uh, with people, but if I didn't have anyone to play with, I would still go on my own. I would practice shots, and it was. And I, I remember, apart from the, the, the physical part, in which at the beginning I wasn't able to <laughs> to finish uh, um, a game without having sex because of my lack of uh, stamina. To, to, towards the end of uh, uh, of the time that I was playing squash, in which will reach the end of the of the game without without an issue. I still have all my all my strength and all my stamina to and speed to, to be able to keep playing good. But it was just I'm practicing every day and I could I, I did feel the progression. And I have the same thing that I did with uh, when I started doing partner dancing over here, uh, Siroc. Uh, I started doing a uh, thanks to an uh, uh, ex-work of mine, uh, I started going two days a, a week at the, at the beginning to, to dance, then I, within three months I, have, I was already going seven days a week to dance, and you could see the progression, and you, I, I could see my own progression up to reach a certain level. I, at that point I knew that if I wanted to, just the way I was doing it, which is, was, it was mostly about Repetition, repetition, repetition. If I want to go forward, the way that I was doing it wasn't enough. Which is what the, the, the only place where I have done properly the change was on programming. I, 
αλλά a certain amount of time, a certain amount, yes, by doing, 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 and at some point I change and I say, okay, okay now, now it's just not practicing, it's uh, practicing with very specific goals in mind, which is mm-hmm. where the katas go, 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 come into play, being able to apply the different patterns or different styles or uh, or that. So you are going from having a kind of very, uh, how can I say, you can go very quickly from having the knowledge to having enough that what you are doing it doesn't is no longer valid and then you have to put additional effort to go farther away so, interestingly the black box thinking touches a little bit on that and talks about how so say you're at a driving range and you know you're you're taking your shots you know if 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 the lights were off so assume you're you're, you're doing it at night if the lights were off you wouldn't better see where the, where the balls landed um, and so it's the fact that actually, well, in order for the lights to be on, you know, you need something in whatever you're doing, whatever you're practicing, that you can measure and you can see whether you're actually making progress or not. Um, mm, and I imagine it's the same with, you know, dancing, whatever, you know, if, if I was dancing in a, in a room that had no mirrors or anything or no one to tell me, you know, what I'm doing, then it's kind of a case that I would be thinking, oh, yeah, I'm doing it. And, and I may have nailed consistency. I may be doing it every single day, but I'm, you know, if no one's telling me or I can't see any kind of, have any feedback then you know I may I may have practiced for 10,000 hours but I may actually not be very good yeah. maybe yeah that's one of the things the book says is that it's really important that you have some way of knowing whether what you're doing is good or not and that's easy for music because it's quite objective if you get your notes wrong then it's obvious that you've got it wrong and you can even you can have a teacher initially and then you can actually teach yourself to to notice when you're slightly out of tune but if you can't do that then you can quite happily clock 10,000 hours playing a trumpet out of tune and never actually get any better you get good at playing a trumpet out of tune yeah Yeah, at some point, is the, the way that you practice, or the, the goal of the practice is not just practice by itself, it's about paying attention to the technique, paying attention yeah. to your, uh, your style, paying attention to all the small things that happen. Which, as well, it happens that the more knowledge that you have, the easier it is to pay attention to all that stuff. Because you have kind of a memorized, just muscle memory, being able to do anything else. So uh, I, I'm moving my fingers with the, with the trumpet. I, I don't have to remember. Well, now I have to, of course. But uh, I didn't have to remember <laughs> what, what it was uh, the uh, a D on on the trumpet. Mm. Which fingers I have to use, or which uh, fingers for uh, A. I will know that, and then I can start by playing, paying attention to other stuff. Yeah. And when, once I, uh, for example, uh, as you say, the 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 actual pitch. And when you have the actual pitch, you can start paying paying attention to the way that you attack the note. And then you can start, once you have improved that, you can start paying attention to, I don't know, the, the combination of notes, how, how are you com- going from one to another one. Well, that's something that the book talks about using, it, it calls it mental representation. That's the moniker he uses for it. And it's, it's exactly this, it's what unit of thing is considered one unit by you. Because you can remember in your short-term memory seven or eight things at once. And say you're driving a car, and when you're changing gear, you have to remember to let to put the clutch in, 
move it into neutral, move it back out, match the revs, then bring the clutch out. That's six things you need to remember. But if you just have to remember to change gear and the rest is automatic, then you can think about other things as well, like whether you're about to crash or whether you've run out of fuel. So the, the, as you practice more and more and more, you can represent more things in one go. And you can see that with reading code, because if, uh, if you're really, really good at reading legacy code, for instance, you can, you can get straight through thousands and thousands of lines of the stuff and have a reasonable idea of what the application is doing. But if you're not, then you get stuck on the first for loop and you're thinking, oh, well, but what about this variable and that one? And that's because you're, it's called chunking. You're, you're thinking about larger chunks of information and practice produces that. I, I always thought that I have worked a lot, like any people, any person with, uh, any programmer with a bit of experience have done a lot of work on legacy code. And one of the things that I always saw that, uh, compared with uh, uh, previous colleagues that uh, uh, I was doing quite well, I was uh, quite useful, is the ability to actually quickly look at code and then just discard the parts that didn't interest me because they were not affecting the, what I, whatever problem I had to solve or anything like that is okay this there's a lot of code over here I can quickly really look into it and okay they discard that, that that's not nothing that I have to worry about I can I can yeah. it's sifting to find the interesting part out of the big pile it's a, yeah and there's a lot of it's kind of a lot of a, a learn a massive learn skill to be able to work out to be able to see the bigger picture from things because otherwise you get stuck reading through if you read through everything the same the trick is to yeah. find the high value stuff to work through, or high or indeed in some cases the low value stuff to yeah, work through. Absolutely. It's, it's kind of yeah, measuring, measuring what's good and what's not. Yeah, that's why refactoring catas are so important. To not just do catas from scratch, but to also take big existing things and smash yeah. your way through them. I, I guess that's important because it's uh, it's kind of trying to duplicate a certain environment. Because if you're in the environment where it's just from scratch, then that's fine. Um, but if you're in, the, in an environment where it's not from scratch, then you're kind of you're kind of making it closer so when you're in a stage when you have to do that you almost have like the, the muscle memory uh, yeah, exactly. of, the of, memory. of doing yeah. that yeah exactly also and the awareness that you can do that and indeed should yes. be doing it all the time to, to improve yeah. stuff because uh, yeah. yeah again sometimes you find find places where the entire thing is uh, legacy on legacy on legacy and some sometimes you'll have things that vary from the, the the stuff that's two years old the stuff that's four years old the eight year old the 20 year old it kind of get yes. layered and layered and layered can be an interesting problem to keep things working Okay, quick question then, same as the other ones, why do you start reading that book? I think that initially, probably quite like Sam, a computer told me to. Um, I suspect it will have come up on my recommended, but you get, the, you get that little search inside thing. Yeah. And obviously it starts with the story about musicians and perfect pitch, and when I read that, my jaw dropped. And that's, I'm pretty sure that's why I ended up reading the whole thing. It was a couple of years ago now. Okay. Uh, what about the style? Uh, is, it, is, it, is it to read? Is it, uh, uh... So it's, it's written by two people. There's Anders Ericsson, who's the psychologist behind it, and a guy called Robert Poole, who's a science writer. So it reads really nicely. It reads like a, you know, any other sort of pop psychology book. It's really sort of gentle, easy read. I didn't find myself struggling at all. You know, he's, he's kept it really light on the, on the buzzwords. It's not. There's not too many difficult long words. No. It's no. It's a lot easier than Kahneman. Put it that way. Yeah. It's interesting the, the different things that we have. The, the books that you have chosen and the main themes of the, of the books. Because so we we have about uh, what is a lot about learning, really, and how to improve or get somewhere through through learning. And we have the you uh, create your book 
about quality. Yeah. Something that is quite important for for us. It makes so much different being able to have quality in the code that we have. And then we have as well failure, which right now, well, right now, for, for, for what people keep saying, fail fast or whatnot, which is not exactly the right the right thing to say, but it is about learning, being able to quickly learn from failure and and not being afraid of, of failing because you're going to fail. You're all the time going to fail. It's inevitable. It's like, how, how, how do we learn to walk? We yeah. don't we don't fall, fall over a lot. Yeah. Well, it's we, also how do you learn to swim? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's like, or drown. One of the early swimming lessons was try and sit in the bottom. Right, you can't. Right, okay. <laughs> now, now you know, since you can't sit in the bottom, you may as well learn to swim. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's true. So, okay, I may have had a fairly nasty swimming instructor, but that was the. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was interesting the fact that all three of, of you, that they are not technical books per se. But there are all three of them things that we have to apply to everything we do. Yeah. So everything that we do. I, I think it's because, I mean, there's a lot of good technological books out there, but I think books like these, they're slightly further back and they have like wider applications. Mm. Um, yeah. I think that's they'll interesting. Last they'll last longer. They, they, exactly. a, a lot of technology books date very quickly, whereas exactly. something that's more general and it's how, how to do things and techniques and improvement, improving, improvement stuff is going to last a long time. Yeah. In particular, this, this, this guy refer, keeps, keeps kind of digging up kind of uh, Plato and Socrates as the kind of uh, as a background yeah. and he's trying to re- re- reuse ideas from then and that's, uh, that's ancient Greek. That's a good point in terms of the generalization of, of ideas because they live for longer and they can be reapplied time and time again. Well, as someone was actually saying at the moment, a lot of programming ideas are working backwards. So um, apparently in the 70s, 60s and 70s, when the early computers were being developed, they came up with an awful lot of ideas, but they suddenly found that the uh, tech, the machinery wasn't, able, wasn't fast enough to do it. So all the modern techniques of, say, functional programming had been developed and attempted back in the 50s and 60s. However, the, the machinery needed to do so wasn't fast enough. And now we've got some machines that are massively faster. So what would have been computationally impossible has now become trivial. And therefore, um, the programming techniques that would have been, that were, were kind of novel and early and discarded in the past are now being brought back. So again, coming back to the ideas from here, we need to look at the past and find out what's the, what's the best rather than what is no. And then sometimes what is new is actually an old idea just recycled. Uh, well, it, it happens a lot in our industry, yes, that we are going back to uh, rediscovering ideas and then we give them a new uh, marketing name. Well, and, and it's yeah. something that we have, we which, have done before. Which the one I keep finding amusing is that uh, React, uh, React's programming, dec- which is decorative structures for um, creating user interfaces, looks to me very much like WPF from Windows from 10 years before that which looks an awful like, like TCLTK from five years before that. So these ideas have actually been, in, been, been recycling. It's just kind of basically just you watch it long enough and the ideas come around again. It actually makes it e- sometimes, looking at having a longer viewpoint, it actually makes it easy to pick up the new stuff because you say, oh, I've seen that. There's another funny one, which is eight years ago, before I even started on computer, before even I was alive, we have the, the whole idea of the, of the centralized server and the, the, the terminals. And then we move to everyone having their own computer and running the software from their own computers. And now we went by, we went uh, suddenly to everyone running web servers, which is a centralized system a with, with a web browser, which is a dumb browser. But now we have started start moving things away from the from the server into the browser 
And we are going back to, to, to what we were in the in the eighties in terms of architectural. Yeah, but then you get the the, the the new stuff turning up, like Phoenix Live views, which is the idea of pushing pushing down user interface changes from the server, so you can actually have the idea going completely the other way, where the entire user interface is rendered from the server and pushed down. So there's everything completely is circling so fast these days. You can move from one to the other within a matter of months. We're moving very fast, but not really in a straight line. Yeah, yeah, it's a spiral. <laughs> Um, as, I, as, I, as I heard, heard somewhere where it said, there's, um, yeah, hist- history doesn't repeat itself, it just rhymes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, any departing thoughts? Because believe it or not, we have been already talking for over 50 minutes. And it has been fun. What's the worst book you've ever read? It's one of the few books I actually have ever managed to get a bookshop to take back, and it was a book on Six, six Sigma. Largely <laughs> 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 because, as a mathematician, the entire concept of Six Sigma is completely nonsense. If you start finding something that's six standard deviations from the norm, you're not dealing with normally distributed data. <laughs> so literally, Six Sigma is named, up, named by someone who is mathematically incompetent. <laughs> Um, I also sent back a book on neuro-linguistic programming for much the same reasons, because when you're in programming, a large amount of NLP is about the idea of mirroring body language to try and convince people to do things. It's great, except in our profession, when you're trying to, you're trying to wrangle a, trying to get a computer to do things. It doesn't matter how you posture your body and try and imitate their body language. It isn't going to work. Yeah, it's not going to compile. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I have like a worse book. Uh, I think, for me, I think I try and be... I, I choose my books carefully. Or maybe it's just luck. You never uh, fail. Well, I mean, With your yeah, choice. yeah. I guess. I guess you're right. You have never failed. I need. I need to fail more with my book choices. <laughs> maybe. maybe. I, I. I guess I made the mistake. I. I guess I maybe have one that springs to mind where, uh, it was. I, I went for like the guide to the language, and it was very heavy for what I wanted. Um, and it was. What, what particular? Do you know particular one it was? So it was. It was go. Um, and at the time, thinking about it, it probably wasn't the right choice because it was it was very heavy and very 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 in depth. And was that just the Go language book? Or? Yeah, and I guess I didn't want to understand that much about the language in the sense that I, I just wanted to, an in, a, a gentle intro, and I went for. You, know. <laughs> you went, went in. <laughs> yeah, I went in. What are unique? Well, I don't really know. When I uh, I should have thought of one before I asked that question. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've read a couple of learn to program books that I didn't like back in the, there was one called Learn Python the Hard Way which people often say they really like the, the premise of it is um, just type out this code you don't need to know what it means yet repetition um, I got about um, I got about yeah it's, it follows the principles of deliberate practice so I suspect if I'd stuck with it it would have been fine but I got about 30 or 40 virtual pages in didn't understand any of it and sacked it off and did an IT course instead uh, and that made me quite I, I didn't like being um, the, the sort of uh, books education books that use a sort of lofty tone where you're the lowly you're the lowly person trying to teach themselves and the, the author knows everything mm. um, they upset me that was one of those I think but that's a very very personal thing well you know the, the, the author is uh, says so it's quite quite uh, Famous for, for his style. I gotta say that I've seen the. I did read the Empath in the Hard Way, I have as well learned through the Hard Way. And I tried to teach someone from scratch, someone that didn't have any knowledge of programming, and too many questions. But if you have done something before, a bit of programming, and then you get moved to one of them, because most of the questions that you're gonna have, you know that you're going to find at some point in time then you can flow through it and learn. That's true. Uh, it is, they're, they're having other books in which uh, they have seen that as a beginner, 
it's, it's just you are trying to uh, beginning of a, of a new concept. It is very difficult to, to get into into that. If you are you know about the general field quite a lot, it becomes much easier to go hard uh, hard way. That reminds me of uh, some language where the guy was was able to speak in like 20 languages, uh, writing uh, 50, and one of the few uh, ancient Chinese, uh, uh, no, what's ancient Chinese or something, he, who, he was able to speak, one of the like 10 people in the world that was able to speak one specific language. And he, he said that his way of learning any language was getting a book of the grammar of the language and then just starting the things. Like, whoa, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Okay. Go, go slow in it. Well, I actually, I actually taught myself Pascal off of the a book that had the Bacchus normal form graph of the language in it. So it is possible to learn programming languages from just the structural details. And again, it was one of the early languages I picked up. I'd, I'd done some C at uni and I had to work onto Pascal. So I actually picked it up by working from a book that just had the diagrams of the Bacchus normal form, formal structure of the language. Wow. And yeah. you can actually learn a lot from a language by doing that way. I wouldn't recommend you doing it in there, but so once you learn the See, techniques... That, that's important because you have mentioned that you have... Uh, I had one language for it. No, yeah. well, mathematician background. I've got a mathemat- mathematics background, yes. Which makes it much easier to read that kind of stuff. If you don't have it, like so coming from uh, maybe from uh, music, for example, that, that, w- that will be quite difficult to... Yeah, to yeah and I suspect Python, the, the way Python syntax is... It's quite declarative and quite mathematical. So if you have ever used any of the kind of mathematics that underpins computer science, you'd be instantly a lot happier. Well, again, so, so for example, a lot of database work suddenly becomes its set theory. Mm. It, it is literally Thank applied you. set theory. And people think, oh, yeah, well, why is that so easy? Well, look, done it before. It's before kind of the same problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, anything else? Want to talk about? I, would, I would say just embrace failure like don't 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 go looking for it in the sense that don't don't deliberately say i'm gonna make <laughs> fall off failure, my bike you know? to yeah <laughs> i'm gonna fall off my bike or i'm gonna deliberately make this database really you know slow or whatever like yeah. you know not in that sense but in terms of like don't be afraid to fail um and providing you haven't you know been negligent or whatever you haven't done something really stupid and you know you've haven't been professional but you know if, if you can learn from failures i think that's massively important yeah, and mine is kind of learn, learn from, learn, try and learn from the past and worry about what, what's best and not what's new. Okay, but the first thing you need? Practice. Practice, practice, practice. Uh, that's what I was where I took my wife. Practice, practice, practice. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. It was a pleasure having you here. Uh, so say goodbye. 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 goodbye.